Welcome, everybody. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Trailhead, and uh, it's my privilege today to have the opportunity to open up the Word with you and hear what God has to say to us. We are continuing our series this summer in the book of Psalms, so uh, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Psalm 146, Psalm 146, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you. You can turn to page 525. Uh, in that hardback Bible. We're looking, as we go through this series this summer, we've said there's 150 psalms. That's a whole bunch. We're not going to be able to get through all of them, obviously, in one summer. So what we have decided to do, what we're trying to do, is look at specific types, specific categories, specific genres of psalms. Psalms, the book of psalms, is Israel's songbook. These are the songs that the nation of Israel sang together to worship God. But there are different types of them, and so we want to look at some of the different types. And right now, uh, we started last week, actually, Brian, if you were here last week, Brian started us in the category, the genre of psalms of praise. And so we're going to continue that today. We're going to look at another psalm of praise in Psalm 146. Um, and, and just to kind of set this up before we read the psalm together, when, when you look uh, at your life, at the world around you, and you see chaos, you see um, fear, you feel hurt, you feel worried, you feel anxious. All of us, when we see all of that, we look somewhere, we look for something to trust in, something to put our hope in, something to give us hope that there's something beyond all the chaos, all the disorder, something that can anchor us, something that can give us meaning, something, something just to look forward to. With all the pain, with all the hurt, with all the fear, there needs to be something other, something better, something I can strive for. Whatever that thing is for you, wherever it is that you put your hope, whatever it is that you put your trust in, that will drive your heart. And wherever your heart goes, that will drive your life. Where we put our hope is a really big deal. Psalm 146 talks about where we place our hope. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to read this psalm with you and then dig into exactly what the psalmist is trying to tell us about hope. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. So, um, I got to start with a little story. When I was in high school, I worked at Arby's. Um, so, if you want to imagine me in the Arby's uniform, 
And um, Arby's at the time, the slogan was not, we have the meats. At the time when I worked there, our slogan was, no, we don't serve cheeseburgers. Look at the menu. Um, <laughs> so I worked at Arby's. The summer after I graduated, I was working an afternoon shift, um, you know, when it's pretty slow in the afternoon. And I was working the drive-thru, and lo and behold, at the drive-thru window, one of my best friend's dads pulls up to the window. And uh, really surprised, you know, to see him. And he's like, oh, Aaron, so cool to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. I haven't seen you since graduation. And uh, you know what? I realized I never gave you a graduation present. So he hands me a $20 bill. And then he pays for his food with a $20 bill. And I remember, and this sounds like a weird detail, but because he handed me one and because he paid with one, I remember both of the $20 bills were like these brand new crisp, like straight from the bank kind of $20 bills. You know what that is like if you've ever gotten money from a bank. Um, so it's like, okay, that's interesting. So he pays for his food. I get off work that afternoon, and I do what I always did when I had cash. I headed straight across the street from Arby's to the CD store. Um, it was called... CDs, sorry, oh, man. So CDs were kind of these things that you could listen to music on. And um, so I went straight across the street and spent my brand new $20 bill on a CD. And I won't tell you what it was because that would be really embarrassing. But anyway, so I, I go home and um, I come into work the next morning. And when I come into work uh, the next morning, they go, hey, come, come here, you're going to be working the cash register today, but we have to show you something. We got something new. We have this special marker, and if you get any bill larger than a $20 bill, you have to use this marker and mark on it, and if it's a counterfeit bill, it will change color. And I'm like, what? Why are we doing this? And they said, well, last night when we made the bank deposit, we had a counterfeit $20 bill. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And they said, yeah, here's the crazy thing. The bank told us the CD store across the street, they got a counterfeit $20 bill yesterday, too. <laughs> oh counterfeit like probably like looked brand new right like real crisp and fresh like straight from the bank kind of that's really interesting and I didn't say anything else but in my head I was like oh my goodness I can't believe this I want I tell you this story now because I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations is up on this <laughs> but I'm pretty sure my friend's dad now I don't understand his logic um, he had all this counterfeit money and he decided he was going to use me to get it into distribution. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, looking back, that I was, I was used to pass fake money. What is the point of that story? Why am I telling you that story? I realize without that special marker on my own, I have no ability, I had no ability, and I still think I probably would have no ability to recognize counterfeit money. Somebody handed it to me. I recognized, oh, this looks nice. It looks new. But as far as I could tell, it was just money. There was nothing in me that said, there's something wrong here. This is fake. This isn't the real thing. I shouldn't use this. Now, to be fair, that's kind of the whole point of a counterfeit, isn't it? Like, I mean, if it was really obvious... Like if it had a picture of somebody different on it, or if it was blue or whatever, then it wouldn't work very well. The whole point of a counterfeit is it's supposed to look just like the real thing. If it were obvious, it would be totally pointless. In our lives, however, 
when we look at where should we put our hope, where do we put our trust? In all the chaos and all the fear and all the anxiety, what am I trusting and where should I invest the hope that I have? What should I lean towards? Where should my heart go? We are tempted, I am tempted, you're tempted as well, to put our hope into counterfeits. To trust our future, our happiness, our security into places and people who are incapable of sustaining or delivering on the promise of joy and the promise of peace. I mean, specifically, and this psalm is going to talk about this, we look, specifically, we look to people. We look to people to give us the affirmation, the blessing, the acceptance, the love that comes, can come, should come, only come from God. But we put trust in people, in leaders, in politicians, in celebrities, in pastors, in parents, in spouses. We put trust in ourselves. Because we can see people and we can't see God. And so the idea that we can hope in, that we can trust in those people to tell us, to give us love is so tempting but we're perpetually disappointed because we keep putting our faith and we keep putting our trust in places that are incapable of delivering on what we're hoping for because because counterfeits aren't real they never do what they promise to do I heard a pastor once say it this way, counterfeit gods never fail to fail. And it's true, people, human beings can never support the weight of our quest for joy. No matter how much we invest, no matter how much we hope, no matter how much we desire for other people to give us the love that we're looking for, to give us the hope we're looking for, to give us the peace we're looking for, they just can't do it. But here's the problem, and it's the problem with all counterfeits. If I were to ask you, are you trusting in people to bring you joy? Is your faith in God or is it in humans? Like, who would say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm totally trusting in people. Oh yeah, I'm not, I don't trust God. I'm looking for people to give me that love. I'm giving, like, like, we don't think that way. We wouldn't say that. But a counterfeit is effective because it's so hard to identify. So how do we know? How do we know where we're putting our trust? How do we know whether the places we're putting our trust are real or fake? I've heard this before about counterfeits, but I've, I've heard this. It's one of those things you hear it so often that you start to think, like, is that true or is that just something some person said, somebody else repeated it? So I went back this week and I checked to find out. And... As far as my research, as, as much as I can trust it, it, it is concerned. This is actually true. As far as federal agents who are trained to spot and identify counterfeit money, the majority of their time, the majority of their training is not spent studying counterfeit money. It's spent studying real money. Because the more familiar they become with the features, with the feel, 
with, with everything about what real money is like, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it all, when they know real money inside and out, then when they see a counterfeit, it's really obvious. Because they're so familiar with the real thing that the fake is just so blatantly obvious. So that's what we need to do today. We need to look at Psalm 146. Because Psalm 146 is a song of praise to God. But in this song of praise to God, it comes with a warning. It comes with a warning to say, don't put your trust in false gods, little g gods, counterfeit gods. Don't put your faith there. There's only one God who's worthy of praise. The real God is the only God who's worthy of our praise. But, but how do we know? How do we know if we're trusting and if we're hoping and if we're praising the real God or a false God? And the author of this psalm, Psalm 146, would say that when we put the two up against each other, when we look at here's the real God and we see who the real God is, and we know what it is that makes him so good and so beautiful and so great, when we put anything else up against him, it's obvious. Because the real God, the true God, the God, as the psalmist will use the phrase, the God of Jacob, God is so much better. So much better. So I'm going to look at this psalm today. I want to show you two reasons that the psalmist gives us why trusting in God is better. Better than trusting in people. So let's look at this. First, first of all, I want you to see this. Our hope in God, putting our faith, putting our trust, putting our hope in God is more secure. It's more secure. Look at this with me. Start in verse 2. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. This is the warning. Don't put your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. In princes meaning human leaders specifically, but then that second phrase, in a son of man, in any human being. Don't trust in people, he says. Why? Because, verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Human beings are mortal. As much as we want to hope in them and trust in them, the future of every human being is the same. Every human being's life will eventually end in death. Now look, I'm not saying that lightly. Okay, when we talk about mortality, we need to understand that many of us have felt the pain of loss. Of not just trusting him, but loving a human being, loving someone, and then losing that person. And the psalm isn't saying we shouldn't love people. But it is warning us about putting our trust in people. About putting our faith in people. Of putting the weight of our hope on people who cannot carry that weight. And in fact, what you find in life is the more weight you put on someone to be for you what God should be, the harder it becomes to love them. Because it's really hard to love someone who what you're actually looking for is to get something from them. And we put on people a weight that they can't carry. 
and we ask them to give us something they can't give us, people are mortal. But the contrast that the psalmist shows us in verse 6, he says, blessed, verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Here's the contrast. Who keeps faith forever. People are mortal. People will fail. People will leave. God is faithful. And he's not faithful for a time. He's faithful forever. And partly, partly, what the psalmist is talking about here is the fact that God is immortal. Verse 10, the Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. In other words, even as people come and go, God continues. That's a part of this. But it's a lot more than that. Because God is faithful even when I am not. God doesn't leave when I fail. He doesn't leave when I'm at my lowest. If I want to put my faith and my trust in people, if I want to get acceptance, if I want to get love from other people, I have to work to make myself acceptable to them. I have to do what they're looking for to be an acceptable person. I have to make myself a lovable person. God reaches to me when I am unacceptable. Look at how he describes God, who God helps. He says, God, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob in verse 5. Look at the list of who it is that he helps in verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the bowed down. In verse 9, the, the sojourners, the widow, the fatherless, the people who in this time and honestly still even today are the most vulnerable, the most in need, the least acceptable to the broader culture at large. God isn't looking for those who are impressive. God saves those who are unimpressive. And that's really good news for me because I know I'm, I'm pretty unimpressive. I'm not somebody who, if I had to earn God's love, I, I couldn't do it. On my own, I would have to, there's, there's a saying, have you heard the saying, I would have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Have you ever heard that expression before? It's a weird expression if you ever stop to think about it. In fact, it started out, the expression pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, it started out as a joke because it's something that's literally impossible to do. Okay, what, it, what it's saying is uh, that, that if you could grab the straps of your boots and lift yourself up off the ground, you could pull yourself up off by your bootstraps. You wouldn't need any help. You'd be totally self-sufficient. You could, I guess, basically levitate or fly by your own strength. It doesn't work. You can't do it. And yet, and yet, somehow, over time, it evolved to be this saying that's supposed to be somehow like inspirational, right? 
You're in a tough situation. You know what you need to do? You just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get back up and go out. And I guess it's supposed to be inspiring to tell somebody that they don't need any help, that on their own they have all the strength they need to fly. It's still impossible, okay? If, if you would like, you could do this experiment later, okay? If you, and in fact, maybe not you yourself. I'm not a real strong, physically strong person, but I know some people who are pretty, pretty strong. And so, like, if you know somebody who can bench press more than their own body weight, then theoretically speaking, they're strong enough to lift themselves up. So why don't you ask them later, don't do it right now, to sit in a chair, put their hands under the chair, and by their own strength, lift the chair off the ground while they're sitting in it. I would love to see it. It won't happen. It's physically impossible. That's what it's like to try to make ourselves good enough, to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, by our own effort by our own willpower, by our own goodness, to make ourselves good enough, good enough for other people, good enough even for God, we'll talk about that in a minute, to make ourselves good enough is like trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're trying to earn something that we are not good enough to earn. If I'm trying to earn my own hope, if my hope is in my ability to be good enough for others, or if my hope's in other people to be good enough to save me, it's an impossibility. But when I look at Psalm 146, what I see is a God, not a God who's looking for me to be good enough. What I see is a God who's reaching down to those who are not good enough. What people view as good enough changes all the time. There's no security in trusting in other people's opinions because other people's opinions change. God doesn't change. He keeps faith forever. And the word faith there can also be interpreted as truth. In other words, what God says is good is good. And it doesn't change. And he keeps that faith. He holds on to us. He keeps it forever. If my trust is in God then my hope can be secure. But I skipped over when I was reading, I skipped over a line, you may have noticed. At the end of verse 8, it says, the Lord loves the righteous. At the end of verse 9, it says, the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. So what's going on with this? Did I skip over it because it undercuts everything I just said? If I'm saying I don't have to be good enough for God, is that what the psalm is saying? Or is this a really clear line right here? No, actually, God will love people who are in difficult circumstances as long as those people are righteous enough, good enough. Actually, that's a really important line that we need to, both of those that we need to look at to understand what this psalm is saying. And it leads into the second reason that the real God is so much better than any other place we can place our hope. And it's this, our hope in God is secure. Our hope in God is secure in Jesus. So two things that I want you to see about these two phrases, the Lord loves the righteous and the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. First, yes, sin 
wickedness, the way of the wicked, it does have consequences, it does. In our lives, the things that we do, the attitudes we have, the bent of our heart away from God, away from His goodness, will ultimately lead, ultimately will lead to our destruction. It will lead to pain. The further we go from the God who gives life, the less life we will experience. So for the psalmist to say the way of the wicked God brings to ruin is actually, as hard as this can be for us to think about, is actually a good thing. We don't want the wicked to go on hurting others and hurting themselves. We want sin to be stopped. We would not want a God who doesn't deal with sin. We would not want a God who doesn't deal in justice. We've spent several weeks earlier this month talking about justice. We want a God who is just. We want a God who sees evil and deals with it. But the problem as I look at this and the problem as I think about this and my hope and my faith and all of that is I'm wicked. I look in my own heart. I don't see righteousness. I see evil. I look at my life, I see sin. And so how can I hope, how can I be secure, if verse 8 says the Lord loves the righteous, if I look at myself and I'm not righteous, how is that a good thing? So this is the second thing that we need to see about these two phrases. The word righteous in Psalms doesn't mean what we normally think of the word righteous meaning. This is really important. If you're, if you're reading through Psalms, we, we have a reading plan. If you didn't get one um, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we, there's a reading plan out there. You can read through the book of Psalms throughout the next couple months as we're going through them. If you're reading through the Psalms, you're going to see the word righteous or righteousness a lot. A lot of Psalms talking about righteousness and a lot of Psalms making promises attached to righteousness. Like, Like this one, the Lord loves the righteous. There are blessings promised to the righteous. There's protection for the righteous. There are psalms where the author cries out, God, because I am righteous, do this. Because you love me because of my righteousness. There are a lot of psalms where the author of the psalm refers to himself as being righteous. I am righteous. But there are also psalms, and this is where this can get confusing, Uh, like Psalm 14, Psalm 53, other Psalms that literally say there is no one who's good. No one does good. No one on the earth is good enough. So if there are all these promises for the righteous, and then the Psalms say, but there's no one good enough, then who are these promises for? And how can somebody say, I'm righteous, and then turn around and say, but no one's good enough? So that's where we have to understand that the word righteous in Psalms is not referring to character or behavior. The word righteous in Psalms refers to a position. When I hear the word righteous, when you, I'm guessing most of us, when we hear the word righteous, we think of it as meaning like morally pure. Someone who's righteous is a good person. Someone who's righteous does the right things. Righteous, right choices, right living right mindset, all that is right. But to be righteous is actually to be right, not in our behavior, 
but in our standing with God or our standing before God. To be in right standing before God is to be righteous. Now, when the Psalms were written, to be in right standing before God meant following the law. It meant obeying the sacrificial system. It meant continually making yourself right with God. Doing your best to follow the law, but when you didn't, here were the sacrifices that you needed to go and offer to put yourself back into right standing with God. And as long as you were in that place and you weren't sinning, or weren't doing this kind of sin or that kind of sin, then you could say you were righteous because you're standing. But then when you sinned or when you did something wrong, then you would go back and make another sacrifice to get yourself back into right standing with God. It's different for us, though. Because Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he took the punishment for my wickedness. He took that punishment on himself. And he offered to me his righteousness. And he offered his righteousness to me as a gift. And so I can say now, even more so than the authors of the Psalms, who would say they were righteous to mean they were, you know, up to date on their sacrifices, that they were, you know, doing their best, I can say, And you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you can say, I am righteous. Not because of anything that's in me. Not because of anything that I've done or that I think I'm going to do. I can say that I'm righteous because I have Jesus' righteousness imputed to me, gifted to me, covering over me, that I can stand, (laughs) I can stand before a holy God, and I can say I'm righteous, and I can say it with a straight face, because I know it's not dependent on what I've done. I'm righteous because Jesus is righteous. I can say that God loves me, Because God loves the righteous, the Lord loves the righteous, and I can claim that for myself, not because of myself, not because of my work, not because I've earned it. I can claim that for myself because of what Jesus did for me. Now for me, this this is a game changer for me. For me, and I'm going to guess, honestly, for most of you, for most of the people here today, the problem that I feel the most is not that I don't care what's right or wrong. The problem most of you struggle with is not that you just want to live the most hedonistic lifestyle available to you. The problem for most of us is not that we don't want to do what's right. Our biggest source of tension, our biggest anxiety, is the feeling that we want to do what's right. And we're just not getting it done. That 
that either I don't know exactly everything I need to know, or even the things that I do know, I keep failing to do. And that feeling that I'm not ever going to be good enough. And the anxiety that when everybody sees it, when I failed too many times, that they're all going to leave me. They're going to see through me. And when they see the real me, the real me is not good enough. What's going to happen? This is the anxiety that I feel and I'm guessing many and many, many of you feel. What's going to happen when I screw up one too many times? And I have that need for human approval and it filters into my view of God as well. If God knows everything, if we believe that there's an all-knowing God, then he already knows everything I've done wrong. So of course, eventually, he'll abandon me as well. And it all leads to that that phrase that we've used so many times before in my life and in your life where we're performing and we're pretending. Where I'm just going to keep trying my hardest and I'm just going to try to hide all the bad. but it never gives me hope and it never gives me joy because I'm constantly worried. Where am I going to be when everybody, including God, walks away? What I see in this psalm, what I hear in the gospel is this, that God's grace for me is not like human approval. If I'm putting my trust in people, then that is true. Eventually, they will abandon me. If your faith is in other people, eventually, they will let you down because you will let them down. But if my faith is in God, He will keep faith forever. Why? Because that faith is secure, not in me, it's secure in Jesus. When I put these two truths together from verse 9, the the way of the wicked he brings to ruin, into the truth from verse 8 that the Lord loves the righteous, and when I recognize that my righteousness is through Jesus Christ, but it's through Jesus Christ because he bore my wickedness on himself. And I see the unmistakable cost of this gift. To say it's a gift from Jesus, we have to recognize that that gift was costly. Not not costly to me. It was costly to God. Because sin is serious, because there are serious consequences from sin, and Jesus took my sin, he took those consequences, he took that punishment on himself for me. Because of his character, the character that's revealed in this psalm, the character of the one who loves those 
who are in deepest need, he took that punishment for me. And I can claim this righteousness. We can claim this righteousness through Jesus. And we can claim it and say that it's sure and it's steadfast, it is faithful, it is true, it is unshakable. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond to God's grace? How do we respond to Jesus' gift of righteousness? Well, it's the through line of this entire psalm. We respond with praise. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The Hebrew phrase, praise the Lord, is hallel Yahweh, or what we often transliterate as hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's such a, oh man, it's such a churchy word, isn't it? Hallelujah. And you probably haven't stopped to think about it. I never really stopped to think about what it meant. I found out this week, so sorry, this might be way off for some of you, but when I was a kid in Sunday school, Sunday school was like um, children's church, we would sing a song where because we like these real competitive songs in church for some reason, we would split the room in half, and one side of the room would sing, Hallelujah, 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 and the other side of the room would sing, Praise ye the Lord. And it was competitive because the goal was to sing much louder than the other side of the room. Do you guys want to do that? We're kind of, no, okay. Um, here's here, the, the whole reason I tell this, because this week I realized, I never knew this until this week, that when we were yelling at each other, Hallelujah and Praise ye the Lord, we were saying the exact same thing. I did not know that. But hallelujah, praise the Lord, all of it is a way of saying, shout about, scream about, yell at the top of your lungs, boast about the goodness of God, the greatness of who God is. When I focus on what is true about God, about his love, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his justice, when I see what is real, I see a place where I can put my hope. And I can, I can boast about that. I can yell about that. I can sing about that. Not about myself. When I say I'm righteous, God loves the righteous, I'm not singing about how great I am. I'm singing about how great He is. About how good He is. About how much He loves me. And the more I sing it, the more I praise Him, the more I proclaim His goodness, His love, His mercy then the more my heart is turned more and more and more towards that love. This psalm, Psalm 146, is a psalm of praise. It's a song I need to sing. I need to sing this song over and over and over again because it reminds me of what is real. It reminds me who the real God is. It protects my heart from the counterfeits. Not because I focused in on what makes false gods false. Not because I spend all my time asking, what am I doing wrong? How can I fix what I'm doing wrong? But instead, because I spend my time, I spend my energy, I spend my focus on what is real, what is true, and what is good. And the more I see what is real and true and good, the less appealing the fake seems. Why would I even want to put my faith and my hope in human beings who are going to fail. When I can, when I'm invited to place my trust 
in a good God who loves me. If you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling anxious about this world, about your place in it, about your weakness, and about your powerlessness, if you're feeling overwhelmed about your failures and about your circumstances, this song is for you. Hear this song. God is faithful. God is true. God will not abandon you. God loves you. Let's pray. We're going to take some time to reflect, and then we'll share communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. You are so much better than all the other pursuits that I spend so much time going after, and you are so good. You're so patient. Because all the time that I go so far from you, you are faithful to me. You love me. And you gave your own son so that I could be covered in your righteousness. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for for coming to me when I couldn't come to you. Thank you for loving me when I was unlovable. Thank you for holding on to me when I do not deserve it. Thank you for your love. God, I pray today that our church will be filled with praise, filled with awe, filled with wonder at who you are. That that praise would infect our hearts, make us bold to speak of your goodness, your mercy, your love. In your name I pray.